Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. This is from Haggai 2, 1 through 5. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The word of the Lord. Thank you. So, if you want to follow along with your Bible, we are again in the book of Haggai, just towards the back end of the Old Testament. We've just started chapter 2, and there are only two chapters. So, for some, that means the end is in sight. Sadly, right? All right, well, I have uh, very much enjoyed this time of going through Haggai. And uh, we do, as, as the chapters change, do change some of the focus of Haggai. Uh, chapter 1 was very much about exhorting the people to obey, to get out of their complacency, to get out of their uh, waiting, and to get back to work, to get back to living faithfully for God, for building the house of the Lord. And we recognize that the house of the Lord is certainly something that uh, the Old Testament people were concerned with, and we might ask ourselves, well, what does that do for the New Testament? We need to remind ourselves that working on the house of the Lord was simply God's way of calling the people to know him and to make him known. And that is very much what we do as God's people in the New Testament. We are to work to know God and to make him known. That is, a, I think, a valid uh, description of the Great Commission. So as we turn to chapter 2, we go from charging people to get to work to encouraging these people who are struggling as they try to obey. And so there is a different tone to Haggai chapter 2. Chapter 1 had some sternness to it. Perhaps you felt a little bit of it. Chapter 2 is much more focused on encouragement, on admonishment. And as we look at the text today, we we can summarize it with this statement. God offers encouragement to people facing hard obedience. We need to admit that obedience is not always easy. In fact, what makes obedience obedience is that at times it is quite hard. Not only does our heart not want to obey, but there are times where choosing obedience is a real struggle. There are times where obedience is not simply one act, but a long, drawn-out process that is fatiguing. And so obedience can be hard. For example, 
the obedience to pray for a loved one who does not know the Lord. Some of you have committed to that. And you may see that prayer go unanswered for a long time. You may not see that prayer answered the way you hope. And it can be fatiguing, the obedience to get up and pray again for that person to know the Lord Jesus, that that person's heart would be open to the gospel, can become hard obedience. Other prayers for healing are like that. When we struggle with addictions, pornography, or a substance, and we know the sinfulness of it, the destructiveness of it, and we are committed, I do not want to be ruled by that addiction. I do not want to be ruled by that urge. It is hard obedience because every day wakes you up with, let's get back to that. Let's have a little bit more of that. And so as you commit yourself to obedience, you are on a hard road. Perhaps you are here with desires or attractions that Scripture does not condone. That can be a hard, enduring obedience to resist attractions to things that you are not to to act upon. Some of you are in a marriage, a struggling marriage, and yet you have to focus on getting up each day and working to the extent that it depends upon you on making that marriage work. The task of loving our enemies, the task of disciple-making. If you have been engaged in trying to form the gospel, gospel living in people's lives, you are used to seeing two steps back, two steps forward and one step back, sometimes two steps forward and three steps back. And it can be very Very challenging to remain committed to that, to not give in to discouragement. But again, this passage in Haggai, God is going to offer encouragement to people facing hard obedience. And so if you have an area in your life that is described by hard obedience, oh, I look forward to this word for you today, because there is encouragement. We have been looking at Haggai under the umbrella of seeing it as renewal, God's desire to renew his people. And we saw in chapter 1 that God is bringing renewal to his people by first of all reminding us that God is ready to renew his people. God is ready for renewal for his people. We have seen that for renewal to happen, we must reject our complacency. We must say, yes, I respond to the offer of renewal And third, we saw last week that renewal comes through obedience, through committing to doing the work that has been given to us to do. We are not just looking at renewal as a word that God gave to the people in the Old Testament and the Restoration period. We are recognizing that God's promise of renewal, his offer of renewal, is given to the people of God of all ages who reject their complacency and who commit themselves afresh and do the work that he calls them to do. This week, though, we we have seen that the people have responded to that, that they are working, but it has been two months. And something has set in that is very poisonous to renewal, something that we always seem to be surprised by. 
discouragement has come upon the people of God. They have been working now two months at building this temple, and they are starting to grumble. They are starting to become frustrated. They are starting to question whether it's even worthwhile to stick to the work. And so they are facing a situation of hard obedience. And as we look at this text, we're going to see that God is going to give encouragement to his people when obedience is hard. He's going to give them, in fact, three ways to be encouraged when they face hard obedience. And all of those ways are grounded in what God does for his people. Let us now look at the very first way that God encourages his people when obedience is hard. First, he does this. God recognizes our discouragements. God recognizes our discouragements. As we look at verses 1 through 3, we can identify three areas that the people of God are beginning to experience discouragement. The first is the most basic, physical. Physical discouragement. It is, as we look at the, the, the date of, the, of this particular message, it is the seventh month on the 21st day of the month, and we recognize that they began work on this uh, temple a month ago. All right? That's, you see that from the end of chapter 1. So they are one month in to lifting stones, to gathering wood and materials, to building a humongous structure. One month in, how much till they're done? You all know that place where you start a project, you're very excited, the diet, the the, the plan to, to read uh, so many books in a year, your New Year's resolution, whatever. That first month, boy, you can, you can do it. And then you look at the next 11 months or maybe the rest of your life, and you're like, this will just grind me down. The task of building the house of God was a physical discouragement. But we also have here evidence of emotional discouragement. Haggai says to them, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? You see, the the people who have returned to the restoration period, who have come back and are receiving the word of Haggai, were in exile for about 50 to 60 years. And so they have come back to Jerusalem, a place that many of them had seen with younger eyes, a place that many had had known from their childhood. And the thing that they knew from their childhood about Jerusalem was this magnificent, incredible, beautiful, stunning temple that was built by Solomon. It was the pride of the nation. And they knew it, not just from their own eyes, but from 50 years of nostalgic memory. And they come back to this place, and they begin to work on it, and they begin to set the foundation, and they can see immediately, this is not going to be Solomon's temple ever again. And so discouragement, emotional discouragement sets in 
We read in Ezra chapter 3 this a description of this sort of discouragement. We're told many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great joy, and the sound was heard far away. These people who see that the temple they are building is is not going to restore their pride, it's not going to be beautiful, are struck with sadness. But that's not the only source of, of emotional discouragement. This is, as we have already seen, the seventh month of the calendar year where they are working. And the seventh month in the Jewish calendar is where the Feast of Booths is celebrated. In fact, the Feast of Booths is happening right here in the middle of this oracle. They are in the middle of the Feast of Booths. And what was the Feast of Booths? It was a time uh, called by God to celebrate. It was like their Christmas Day. Jews, of course, don't have Christmas Day. but This was their their celebration. It, It corresponded to the taking in of the harvest. And they saw in the harvest God's plentiful blessing upon them. And they were in booze. They were called to to spend this week in little tents to remind themselves of God's faithfulness who brought them out of Egypt, who delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. It's a great celebration. It really uh, was the part of their calendar that marked the last year from the new year. So it was like New Year's. It was like the time where all of your memories and all of your joy is supposed to be bubbling up in good feelings. But what happens when you're supposed to have a great, joyous time and you're confronted with great disappointment? When you go to another wedding as a bridesmaid, wondering, am I ever going to have my own wedding day? When you come to the new year saying, I am in the exact same place that I was last year. Or I'm in a worse place than I was last year. That becomes emotionally discouraging on a far greater level. And so we have that emotional discouragement, that sense of disappointment and defeat. But we also have mental discouragement. Haggai says, is what you are doing not nothing in your eyes? Not nothing. The the, the thing that you were building, that you are putting your labors to, it's as good as nothing. It's a joke. It's a sham. It's a shell of what you want to be doing. You know every stone you lay is just evidence of how inadequate and how far short you are going to fall in pleasing yourself. And so you are racked with disappointment and with this mantra, you, this is futile. What you are trying to do is a waste of time. You are only adding insult to injury by committing yourself to this work. And so the discouragement mentally is great defeat. What can we say at this point? I think it is worth noting that depression and discouragement can come upon faithful believers. 
Let's not lose sight of the fact that the people are trying to obey. They are trying to do what they need to do in their relationship to God. And yet, in the midst of their obedience, they are struck with discouragement. They are struck with depression. There is a time where discouragement and depression can fall upon even faithful believers. It is a lie to say that if you have a real relationship with Jesus, you'll never feel sad, you'll never struggle with depression, you'll never battle discouragement. That's a lie. It happens. It happened right here. There is good company for people who struggle with discouragement and depression. You are in the company of Job and Jeremiah and many people who wrote the Psalms. You are in the company of Paul. In 2 Corinthians, we see this moment of of autobiography where he says, I had this thorn in the flesh given to me and I pleaded with God three times Take this from me. Three times he couldn't accept that thorn in the flesh. It was draining him. It was exasperating him. It was discouraging him. It was limiting him. And he wanted God to take it away. You can't say those words and not have been at the the place of discouragement. And so I do want to give this encouragement to anybody who struggles with depression and discouragement. Hold fast to the faith. You are not alone. And this discouragement will not be the end of the story. I want us now to look at the, 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 the discouragements that God recognizes them. We've seen what the discouragements are But now it's important to see God understands the discouragement of his people. What has happened in this passage? But God has told Haggai, go to the people in the seventh month. Speak now. Speak right now. Don't allow this moment to pass. You must speak to them now. It is emphatic. And he tells Haggai to say all that we have just said. These words, who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory, how do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? Those are the people's words, but they are also the words that God has given to Haggai to say. He wants the people to know God hears your discouragement, and he knows your discouragement. This is a beautiful thing. If you struggled with depression and discouragement, because it tells us that God responds to discouragement with recognition, not denial. Have you ever had a relationship where you're like, if you could just understand, but you won't even understand that there is a problem. You refuse to listen to the conflict. That's a deep pain, is it? But here we find God responds to his people with recognition, not denial. And I think there is great therapy in knowing that God does understand and recognize his people's discouragement. But more, he offers sympathy, not dismissal. He speaks now and he wants Haggai to address it. So it's He speaks now and he says, 
God has sent Haggai to meet people who are discouraged to give them counsel. He says, I know you are discouraged. I'm going to speak to your discouragement. I'm going to give you counsel. I'm going to offer you aid. What we see here is that God responds with sympathy, not dismissal. The words of God to his people are not just forget about it. Just forget, just ignore it. No, he speaks with sympathy. I am going to tell you what you need for your discouragement. This reminds us that God is a wonderful counselor and a sympathetic high priest. If you are today struggling with discouragement, disappointment, depression, this is a God who wants to help you. This is a God who will recognize your struggle, who will give you the sympathy that you need. I want you to hear these words from Jesus himself in the book of Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those are words of a Savior who wants you to bring your hardship, your discouragement, your mental anguish to him so that he can work his grace and love and rest into your life. So God recognizes our discouragements. But second, God reorients our gaze back to him by reminding us of two truths. So yes, God comes and he recognizes it. He sympathizes with it. But he also addresses it. He reorients our gaze back to him. And what he does is he gives us two truths. First, he wants us to remember his steadfast bond toward us. His steadfast bond toward us. Look down at the end of verse 5. Verse 5, there it is. Uh, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. What is God doing? He is reminding his people, yes, you are facing discouragement, but here's something you must not forget. I'm with you. I am committed to you. I'm going nowhere. I am here. I am committed to you based on the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. And what was the, the, the to summarize the covenant uh, in very brief language, this is what God did to his people in Egypt. This is the covenant. I will take you to be my people and you will be and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That is what God is reminding his people through Haggai. I have made a covenant commitment to you. 
And so as you face discouragement, don't lose sight of this. I am with you. You are not alone. Okay? Now, there is something amazing about these words. The covenant, God says, I made with you when you came out of Egypt. There is absolutely nobody in Haggai's day who came out of Egypt. That was a thousand plus years before Haggai's day. And yet God is saying, the covenant that I made with your people back in the Exodus days of Egypt still stands. I am still bound to it. I am still committed to you through it. God's faithfulness is millennia long. I think the reason, one of the reasons, the Bible is as big of a book as it is, is not because it's so hard to get the message of the gospel to you. We can put the message of the gospel in a postcard. It's because God wants to show you through ages, through decades and centuries and millennia, that he is a God of faithfulness. You read through the Old Testament, and if you do not come to it at points saying, why does God stick around with this people? All they do is go after idols. All they do is commit sins. All they do is sell themselves out to other nations. Why does God not just walk away? Because God wants to show you that he is faithful, that his commitment, his word to you is an unbreakable bond. And so as these people are facing discouragement in the moment, he wants them to recognize you do not need to be discouraged because you have the God of your fathers here faithfully committed to you. God is with you. And so that should be encouragement to to the people in Haggai's day. But even greater, we have the encouragement that comes from that bond being sealed by the blood of Christ. We don't just have to learn how much God, how trustworthy is God's word. We get to look at the evidence that God's word is so trustworthy that he gave his son on the cross that all who trust in him will not perish. These are Paul's words of the bond that God has towards us. Romans 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be, spl- to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's what Haggai is saying. You are discouraged because you are facing and focusing on the problem. 
But the reality is you are more than conquerors because you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. A bond that will not be broken. A bond that will see you through death. And so, you should be reoriented from what's causing your discouragement to a clear and unclouded gaze upon a God who loves you so much to seal you into His life by the blood of His Son. Who can separate you? Who can possibly overcome you or overwhelm you when you have been sealed and promised eternal life at the cost of the Son of God? That's the first truth. The second truth is His settled spirit that is in us. God also reminds his, his people, my spirit remains in your midst. The word remains there could also be translated is standing or stands. Now who determines who stands? Whose, whose will determines standing? I am standing because I have chosen to stand. What God is telling his people is my spirit is not coming and going based on your resolve, based on your courage, based on your strength. My spirit is here and remains here and stands here because I have made my choice to put my spirit here. And only if I were to change the decision that I have made will my spirit not stand here. And so he wants his people to know in the midst of their discouragement, my spirit has not become discouraged. My spirit has not given up. My spirit is here to stay the course. And so with his spirit in their midst, they can rest in his presence in his blessing, in his power. That's what Haggai's people got to hear. But then what about us? It is only a greater presence that we experience of the Spirit. Because the Spirit was amongst God's people in Haggai's day. But as covenant believers after Christ, We are given a far greater presence of the Spirit. The Spirit is in us when we are in Christ. Listen to these words of Paul from the book of Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Who is making that guarantee? Who is sealing the Holy Spirit? Is it the strength of your faith? No, it is God who has determined you are mine. I seal you and I guarantee you. It is to say that if anyone who has been given the Holy Spirit does not reach salvation, God has failed. 
God's guarantee has broken. And that is an impossibility. This is an amazing assurance. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. God knows your worst day. When he put his spirit upon you, when he guaranteed you by the presence of his spirit, he already knew your worst day. He knew your greatest struggle. He knew the depths of your discouragement and depression that was in the future for you. And he still placed his spirit in you. I think there is great comfort in the book of John. When does Jesus say that Peter is going to be called the rock? At the very beginning, his very first encounter, he says, uh, Simon, you are going to be known as Cephas, the rock. How much folly and failure and discouragement did Peter go through before those words even approximated truth? He denied the Lord three times. He blustered and asked the wrong question. He was even on the wrong side of a gospel dispute in the book of Galatians. But that is not where his assurance lied. His assurance lies in the fact that Jesus says, You are mine. I have sealed you with my spirit. And that spirit was given to him not based on whether he performed, because he knew he wouldn't. God's promise of putting the Spirit in us means that even in your worst day, you can turn back to God and His grace is there to say, I love you. I forgive you. I am still in your midst. I will see you through. It is the fact that God is with us that must anchor our perspective. It is not our discouragements that we should be focused on, but the fact that God is with us by his bond and by his spirit. Some of you know the last couple weeks have had a a fair share of calamities and misfortunes in the Edwards household. Uh, Just to give you a brief synopsis, two weeks ago, as I was out and about having a nice uh, problem-filled moment, uh, my wife called me to tell me that a pipe had burst in her upstairs bathroom. She could not get the water shut off. And her husband couldn't either (laughs) for several, several minutes. So we had about 40 minutes of just unstopped water coming down, raining uh, through our sheetrock into our master bedroom. And uh, it was horrible. It, it, It was traumatic. My kids were home at that time, and they were sweet and so helpful. They were grabbing buckets and towels and trying to mop up these hundreds of gallons of water and doing what they could, and uh, they were wonderful, but they weren't fixing anything. Um, And we, my wife and I, are just sitting in our new house, looking at our walls, hearing the drip, drip, drip of nonstop water coming through, smelling wet sheetrock. Oh, we're discouraged. This is not good. This is not supposed to happen. 
But he couldn't sleep that night. It was a rough, rough night. I got up the next morning, and one of my boys came to have a little time in the morning with me. And he said to me, yesterday was interesting. (laughs) Yes, son, yes, yes, yesterday was interesting. But I love that comment, because yesterday was in the past. Yesterday was interesting means it was over. It wasn't on his mind. What, What my son was oriented upon was the fact that he was in a secure relationship with a mom and dad who did not leave, who did not go away. He was in a relationship, a bond, and a presence. And that meant yesterday was interesting, and that's the end of it. When we are set, oriented upon him, we do not become defined by our discouragement. We become defined by the one who is covenanted to us. And that changes everything about how we look at the problems of our day. Amen? So third, we've seen that God recognizes our discouragements. God reorients our our gaze back to him. Third, God redirects us to the task at hand. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about how God recognizes our discouragement, his recognition, and his sympathy towards us, but I do not want us to come to a wrong conclusion. God meets you where you are, but God does not leave you where he found you. God's grace meets you where you are, but he does not leave you there. God does not coddle us in our discouragement and our defeat. God admonishes us out of discouragement. And that is where the three commandments that we have in this text play in. We are told, God tells his people three things. Do not fear, be strong, and work. These three commandments are part of God's grace to call people out of their discouragement. The first commandment is do not fear. He is telling his people, do not retreat. At this moment of discouragement, do not quit. Do not retreat. You must fight the discouragement. Because we must recognize what discouragement really is. Discouragement is a process where our mind focuses on the flesh and not the spirit. I have a question for for you as a congregation. How many of you perhaps have become checked out, or worn out, or frustrated with church, that you just have said, you know, I tried to help this church at one time, I I got on a committee or on a team, they didn't take my ideas, they didn't give me the, the affirmation that I was looking for, I just got worn out with it, it just didn't seem to do any good, it just made me frustrated, so I am just going to sit here. I'm going to stay on the fence. I tried to get plugged in, and something happened that just didn't go my way, and so I'm discouraged, and I'm sitting out. I know that feeling. I have been with thoughts like that at other places. I ran into a woman recently who told me they quit. she quit coming to church because she was so upset with how a counseling encounter went. 
Her discouragement made her say, well, I'm just not going to church anymore. That church doesn't take care of me. That church doesn't love me. And I'm just not going to church. They have checked out. Do you see what happens if discouragement begins to rule our thoughts? It will destroy us. We read in our prayer of confession from the book of Galatians where we are told, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Discouragement is a way to sow to the flesh. To say, my problems and my hassles and my hardships, those are the things that get my attention. That is sowing to the flesh. But when we are told, do not fear, we are being called to attack our discouragement with the power of the Spirit to take what we know that the Spirit is within us to attack the fact that discouragement is in our midst because the Spirit in us is greater than our discouragement. Second, we're told to be strong. Be strong are the same words that God told Joshua at the, at the uh, end of, of Moses where he, he passes away. We come to Joshua in the beginning of the book of Joshua, and God says three times, be strong and courageous. Because in front of Joshua is the taking of the promised land. A mighty task. An improbable task. Why is, is Joshua called to be strong? Because God is with him. And that is why Haggai is saying be strong. Because God is with them. It is not about how much you think you can do or how much you think you can accomplish. It is because God is with you that you can find strength. So being strong means to gird ourselves, to resolve our mind to obey. Not to fixate on the discouragement, but to resolve ourselves that I will put my hand to the plow and keep going. And third, we're told work. Work. We're not supposed to talk about the word work. We're evangelicals. Saved by faith alone. In Christ alone, absolutely. But God does command work. Work is a part of living out our faith. And work is a very important part of getting us out of discouragement. God gets us out of the funk of discouragement by getting us back to work. This is very important. God doesn't wait for the people to get their heart back in the job. He says, get back to work. He doesn't wait for the heart. He says, the heart is going to have to follow the work. You must get to work. Because we don't wait for the heart to want to work. We obey and we let the heart follow. In work, God is calling us to focus on obedience, not on our desires, not on results, just on whether we have been faithful in what has been given to us today. And this is really love. It is love to call these people back to work because they are going to do something. What are they going to do if God doesn't set them back to work? They are going to grumble and grieve and they are going to go deeper and deeper into their, into their dis- discouragement and depression. They are going to fall deeper and deeper into joylessness and apathy. But calling them to work is calling them to obedience, and that is the only path that leads to joy. 
Obey my commandments. That is the way to joy. As we finish today, there is a poem that I think summarizes well what Haggai is trying to get at. I think it applies to us. It's called Do the Next Thing. I'm going to read it for us. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath it seems to me teaching from heaven. And on through the doors the quiet words ring like a low inspiration, do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quitting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed and on, on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all results, do the next thing. Looking for Jesus ever serener, working or suffering, be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing, then as he beckons thee, do the next thing. Haggai's words to us, to be encouraged, is do the next thing. What is the next thing in your faith? What is the next thing in your obedience? What is the next thing in your relationship to River Community Church? Is it to repent? Is it to pray? Is it to plug in somewhere? Is it to share your faith with a friend? Is it to ask for help? Is it to take the medication? Is it to make the phone call? Is it to get accountability? Is it to say, I'm sorry? Is it to make time? Is it to go? What is it? Do the next thing. Lastly, I want to say, if you do not know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. The next thing is very simple. You must give yourself to Christ. There is no remedy for the discouragement. There is no remedy for the calamity that is going to come upon you if you continue to refuse the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead to make you his own. The promise that God's word is with us, that God's spirit in our midst is given to those who have given their faith and trust to Jesus Christ. You must call upon the Lord. You must say, be my Lord and Savior. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to be known as your, your disciple. If you have not done that, if you have refused that, everything that I have said, all of the encouragement in front of me that you have been able to hear is not for you. The words of encouragement, the words of hope are for those in Christ. 
Do the next thing. Say, Jesus, save me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you do recognize our discouragements, that you have committed to us a steadfastness that goes beyond our comprehension, and that you give us redirection to do the next thing. Help us, Father, search our hearts for what is that next thing that we might respond in obedience. And so we pray as your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.